0: continue looking at uh, the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. For the past few weeks, we have looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to begin today looking at the book of Job. Job is a really important book in the Bible that we actually don't talk about very much. Uh, Job looks at wisdom through the lens of suffering— Suffering, as we know, is inevitable in our lives. It comes in different shades and different colors for different people at different times, in different ways, to different degrees. And the question that we have to have as followers of Jesus is how do we navigate suffering with wisdom? How do we reconcile suffering with making big spills on the floor? right, during your sermon. Thank, thank you so much. <laughs> um, how do we reconcile suffering with the all-good and all-powerful God that we worship? These are really important questions for us as followers of Jesus, and these are questions that the book of Job addresses very clearly. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz. just for a moment here. We we have just been introduced to the main character of the book of Job, a guy named Job. And here's what we know about Job so far. We know that Job was blameless and upright. That didn't mean that he was perfect, but it did mean he was a person above reproach. He was a person of great faith and great character. He would have been a loving father, a loving husband, a person who loved God, a person who worked hard and worked justly. The picture we get of Job is that he was a really good guy. But that's not all. Job was not only a good guy. Job was rich. That's why we get the list of all of his animals. The text is telling us Job was a good guy and Job had a lot of resources. So skip with me to verse six. The, ver- the scene changes. We move from Job to the heavenly council. Verse six. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Okay, so the scene changes dramatically here, and we get this really interesting and honestly a pretty confusing dialogue between God and Satan. And there's lots of questions that we probably have that this text does not answer. We think, um we have a heavenly council. Why is Satan there? We don't know. We're thinking, why is Satan included in the heavenly council? We do not know. Satan is a powerful spiritual being who stands against God, who stands against what God loves, stands against God's children. The name Satan literally means accuser. And that is exactly what Satan's doing in this passage. He's coming before God and he's accusing both Job and God himself. He, he, he's having a conversation with God and he's like, um, yeah, God, I'm um, sure Job loves you because look at him. He's filthy rich. Who wouldn't love you? He doesn't really love you, God. He loves all this great stuff that you have given to him. He accuses Job basically of being a hypocrite. And then he turns on God himself. Okay, God, you're saying, Job, this guy, he is your all-star? He is your main guy, upright, blameless, this guy? Well, let me tell you, if you were to just remove your hand of blessing, he would curse you to your face. God, you must not be very worthy of having followers who love you for you. These guys, they love you for your gifts. And then the scene changes. We move from Job's house to heaven, back to Job's house. Verse 13. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep, and the servants consumed and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold... A great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people. They're dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. So in a moment, Job's world changes. A very good man is overtaken by a series of disasters. And we can see the author of the book of Job is setting up the question for us. Why is this terrible thing, these terrible things happening to such a good person? You see, in a moment, Job is thrust into intense suffering. He loses his wealth, he loses his family, and in chapter two, he loses his good health. And we think, well, what is it? What is Job? What does he do with that? Let's keep reading. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. You see, the book of Job speaks about suffering on two very important levels. First, it talks about suffering at a personal level. It's not just philosophical. It's not just academic. And we all know that in the room today. I know there are people in here who have experienced horrific seasons of suffering. Some of you are going through that season right now. And you know, it's not just academic, it's not just philosophical, it is very real and personal. So the book of Job does not want to trivialize or minimize suffering. And I don't want to do that this afternoon either. The book of Job doesn't take suffering and sweep it under the rug and say, hey, it's all fine, it's not that bad. No, the book of Job is going to say, no, suffering is horrific. I mean, we could just look at the paper today. We see horrific suffering. If I were to take a a, uh, survey of the room this afternoon, we would probably hear stories of great suffering. So we don't trivialize it. We don't minimize it. No, we will have to stare at it straight in the eyes in a very personal way. But Job does move on from the personal and he does talk about the philosophical side of suffering because suffering brings up big questions. Why? Why me? Why now? Why them? They're a good person. Why would you do that, God? If I were you, I wouldn't do it that way. Why would you allow something like that, God? It doesn't make sense to me. So for Job, and as we study this book, it's important for us to look at this at at two levels, a personal level and a philosophical level. So what can we learn about navigating suffering from this passage? First, we learn to trust a God who is in control who we cannot control. See, one of the key points we see in chapter 1 is that God does not create Job's suffering, but, Job, but God clearly allows it. He is the one ultimately in control of the situation. And even that bothers us. We tend to read this passage in Job, and if you're like me, we think, this whole conversation between God and Satan is really messed up. <laughs> like, It seems like God is playing games with Job's life. But we have to just go a a bit deeper to understand what is going on here. Notice that the suffering that Job experiences is Satan's idea, not God's. Also notice that the suffering that Job experienced comes from Satan's work and not God's. And this is important. God is not actively creating evil and putting it into Job's life. Remember, when God created the world, he created a world without suffering. It was a good God who created a good world. There were no disasters. There were no disease. There was no death. But when sin entered the story, suffering came into our world. Sin brought brokenness, brokenness brought suffering, but it was not God's intention. And we see in this text, God didn't create the evil, God allowed it. He is in absolute control. Did you notice that he puts limits on Satan? (laughs) He tells Satan, you can go this far, but no farther. This is not a battleground between God and Satan. It's not like, well, we got a really powerful bad thing and a really powerful good thing, and who's going to win? That's not what's happening. God is in firm control. Satan, you go this far, no farther. I'm in charge. Satan is not in control. Job is not in control. God is in control. But still the question remains, okay, fine. God didn't create it. God allowed it. That makes sense, but why did he allow it? That's what we want to know. Why did he allow it? You see, ultimately, we don't know all the reasons that God does what he does. We're going to talk more about this as we get later into the book. But we have to notice something else in this passage. Satan wants Job to suffer. Why? to discredit his life and his faith. God allows Job to suffer to build a stronger life and faith. You see, Satan's intentions for Job are completely undermined. Job wants to discredit, I mean, God, <laughs> Satan wants to discredit Job's faith, but actually the opposite happens. The suffering comes into Job's life, and he lands on his face in worship. Instead of cursing God, Job worships. You see, God hates suffering, but he is in control of it. He allows it only to the degree to which it accomplishes the opposite of what Satan wanted it to And this idea, if you'd stay with me for a moment, this idea goes against the two most common approaches to suffering we see in our world. You see, the first approach to suffering that is very common among us is a more traditional religious approach. And this approach basically says, you are suffering because you've done something bad. (laughs) Like you have not obeyed God. You have not loved God. You have sinned in some way and you're suffering as some type of punishment. So you better get your act together. You better do what's right. And then maybe God will leave your suffering. But that's not what Job teaches. You see, Job is very clear. He's an upright guy. His suffering was not a result of a mistake that he made. So it undermines that view. But the second view we see so commonly in our world is the secular approach to suffering. And this view is that suffering is random. Like there's no greater purpose to your suffering. There's no plan behind it. There's no God who's working something good out of your suffering. You're just unlucky. I'm sorry. It's random. It's what the famous atheist Richard Dawkins says, "'In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference.'" See, this is the secular view of suffering. There is no greater purpose. Get over it. Don't look for a greater plan. There is none. All you have is pitiless indifference. But Job says very clearly, no, 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 no. There is a God. And this God is in control. And this God does have a plan, even in the midst of your suffering." You see, both the traditional religious approach and the secular approach ultimately are unsatisfying answers. So Job steps in and he says, here's a different approach to suffering. What if we can learn to trust a God who is in control even when we cannot control him? Because that is what we want to do with God, isn't it? We want God to do what we want him to do. And what we see in Job is The God of the universe doesn't fit neatly into our boxes. We cannot control him. We cannot manipulate him. We can't be good little Christians and expect God to do our bidding. He's so much bigger than that. So we learn to trust a God who is in control, but who we cannot control. Second, we learn to love a God who is good, even when we cannot fully understand him. If we look more closely at the dialogue between God and Satan, let's, let's zoom in for a bit. Here's essentially how, how this goes God says to Satan, Hey, um, Job, he really loves me. Satan responds, Job doesn't love you, Job loves your stuff. In fact, all your little minions down there, they just love your stuff. None of them actually love you. Yeah, look at Job. He's, he's rich. He's got a huge family, tons of blessings. I guarantee you, you remove those things and Job will curse you to your face. And he's like, God, you think Job is in this for you? <laughs> he's not. He's in this for himself. And actually, what Satan is getting at is actually a pretty good point. It is a problem that every follower of Jesus has. It is one of our root core spiritual problems. Learning to love God for who he is, not what he can give you. I love God's blessings as much as anybody We delight in God's good gift, but part of the Christian journey is separating the gift from the giver and saying, even if I didn't have the gifts, I still love the giver of those gifts for who he is. That he is a good God. He's a God who fulfills his promises. He's a faithful God. He's a kind God. He's a just God. And unfortunately, one of the only ways that we can learn this in our Christian journey is through suffering. It is those moments in life when God takes away all that we have so that we can learn that God is all that we need. Right? If we just kept living with all these good things and we never had a moment of want, we would say, God, um, I don't know if I actually need you. I got all this other great stuff. This is why we often don't know the why of our suffering. That's what we want to know. Why God? But when we get the answer to the why question, it often loses the transforming power of the moment. It is in the wrestling, it's in the tension, it's in the angst, it's in us coming before God, angry or confused or sad, when we have that real intimacy, when we actually get to know him for who he really is, when all is stripped away. And we say, God, I love you. I want more of you. Something interesting we see in Job's story, is we the reader, we can see behind the scenes. We know what God is up to. Satan knows, God knows, we the readers know, but Job does not know. You see, the point of the Christian story is that God creates free people, people who can choose to love him or not, free people, not robot worshipers. And he wants children who love him because they want to love him. Love him by choice, not because they have to. You see, more often than not, we don't get to see in this life what God is doing behind the scenes in our suffering. Oftentimes it makes no sense. But we can learn to love God for who he is in the midst of him being really confusing to us. I love the way Charles Spurgeon said it. God is too good, hear me, if you've zoned out, tune back in for one moment, this quote is worth it. God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. And that's exactly what Job does. In the midst of this unbelievable suffering, he bows to the ground. He had to be confused. We're going to find out in the later chapters. He was very confused. But in that moment, he bows to the ground and he worships. He says, blessed is the name of God. Blessed is the name of the Lord. He loves God for who he is so that even when the stuff is taken away, he still loves God. And that's what we can learn in our suffering. Finally, we learn to worship a gracious God even while grieving our losses. I feel like the final part of chapter one is holy ground for those of us who suffer. It's a picture of, Of godly grief. Notice this that real grief goes right alongside genuine worship. They are not contradictory, they go together hand in hand. I think sometimes we think that when we're suffering, like I wanna be, I'm a good Christian. I gotta put my happy face on. I gotta trust God and be thankful because I know there's all sorts of good things and I know there's other people that have it worse than I do so I just gotta pretend that everything is fine and it's not really that bad because I'm a good Christian. That's not what Job teaches us. Job, look at verse 20. Arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. Tearing his robes, falling to the ground, crying out. What is he doing? He's grieving. He's grieving. He's mourning. I mean, he, the, the guy just lost everything in his life. You see, grief is a good gift from God. It drives us. When we allow ourselves to grieve, it drives us into the comforting arms of our heavenly father. Grief allows us to acknowledge the good thing that was lost. But that's not all that Job does. He fully embraces this feeling of grief while still fully worshiping a God of grace and goodness. Real worship does not skip over grief. It goes through grief. Job's suffering drove him back to God, deeper into God's love, deeper into his grace, deeper into his presence. Notice what he says, these words. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What is he saying? I came into this world with nothing. I was naked, I was vulnerable, I didn't have a thing. Everything I I had, which was sizable, came from God's gracious hand. Everything I had was a gift from him. But my life was not based on those gifts. My life was based on God. Blessed be his name. So if you remove the gifts, my life still remains because my my life was not built on the stuff. If we build our lives on our possessions, when they are taken from us, we will be crushed. But if we build our lives on God, the most important thing about us can never be taken away. And that is what we see from Job. If we build our lives on God, suffering just drives us deeper to the thing that we love most. But again, we don't enjoy it. It's not like we delight in our suffering. It's terrible. It's horrible. What happened to Job is horrible. But what it can do is like a hammer and now drive us deeper if we let it into God. But Job's suffering is not the end of the story. See, we see a tension here that we get an answer to later in the scripture. Job does not give us a full picture of suffering. From the rest of the scriptures, we learn that our God is not one who is removed from suffering. We actually learn that God became man and took on our suffering. He suffered alongside us. He even bore our suffering on the cross himself. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Our Savior See, the story of the gospel is that God himself stepped on the scene of human history. He would become the only truly innocent sufferer. Job was not truly innocent. He was a sinful man like you and me. But unlike Job, Jesus was sinless. His suffering was completely unjust. Unlike Job, Jesus didn't just lose all of his possessions. He lost his very life. The Son of God, can you imagine it? Crucified on a Roman cross. Ultimate innocence and ultimate suffering. One man, one moment. Jesus Christ suffered in our place, the gospel tells us. Jesus suffered so that in our suffering, we can find healing. Jesus suffered so that when we feel like the weight of the world is on our shoulders, it will not ultimately crush us. It will ultimately propel us to glory. Jesus suffered so that when we suffer, we can know a couple of things. First, we can know that we are not alone. The cross tells us the length God was willing to go to be with us in our suffering. He's with us. He's well acquainted with our sorrows and our pain, and He cares deeply. I was reminded this week of the book, The Magician's Nephew. You remember the book from Chronicles of Narnia? So there's a boy named Diggory. Diggory is on this great adventure with Aslan. And um, Aslan, as you know, is the Christ figure in the story. Uh, But Diggory's mother is sick. They've been in a season of suffering, and he desperately wants Aslan to heal his mother. So he finally gets the courage to ask, and here's how the conversation goes. Please, please, won't you? Can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the great lion's feet, the huge claws on them. Now in his despair, he looked up at his face. What he saw surprised him, as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. This is a powerful picture that C.S. Lewis is giving us of how God treats us in our suffering. He is not far off. He bends down to be face-to-face. He's not aloof. It's not as if he doesn't care. In fact, he's weeping. What if God is sorrier about your suffering than you are? Do we have this type of picture of God? Remember Mary weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, her brother? Jesus, why? What does Jesus do? Jesus wept. That's who our God is. We don't understand why He does everything that He does. He's he's the God of the universe. we, We shouldn't expect to. But we know that He cares. He showed it on the cross. Second, we know that in our suffering, he's not only with us, but he's transforming us more into his image. We know this for sure, that in a moment of suffering, Christ is doing a great work in us and that our suffering does not ultimately crush us. As followers of Jesus, we know for sure our suffering is not the end. Our suffering ultimately transforms us. Even to the end of our very lives, we enter into his glory, and we will be like him. You see, on the cross, Jesus did suffer. Jesus was crushed. But in his suffering, he provides a new path for us through suffering. We know God's character, we know God's heart, we know God's love, we know God's comfort, and we know the end of our suffering is the transformation of our lives to look like Jesus. What would it take for us to go through seasons of suffering? What type of view of God must we have to lose everything and to grieve and reflect and say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray for that type, that type of vision of who God is today. Father, we give you thanks. We give you praise. God, we want to respond like Job. We want to have that. Uh, picture. So God, give us a bigger view of who You are. God, forgive us for the times we've tried to squeeze You into our little boxes and control You. To say, "Look how good I've been, God." I need Your blessing, but God, we want to step back and say, "We love You for You. We love You as um, our gracious Father, not for what You can give, but for who You are." And we want to trust Your heart, God, when we cannot trace Your hand. So God, I pray for those who are going through suffering right now. God, we pray for your comfort. We pray that they would know and experience your nearness. God, I pray that they'd be able to take a step back and see a broader perspective. And God, we pray that they would be able to step forward in hope, knowing that you have not left them or forsaken them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.